What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the well-awaited episode 7 of the Power Hour with Free Royal. I, of course, am Free Royal. Man, it has been a long time. I know it's been a long time, about two months. I've been doing a lot of things concerning my career. It got to a point where I hadn't been recording, and then I was trying to wait for something major to happen, and then something else major would happen. I still wouldn't record because I had so much going on, but I'm back. We have a mega episode today. There's a lot to talk about. There's been so much happening in the sports world. You know, we had Crawford versus Spence, a super fight. That was highly entertaining. For some people, probably shocking. I'll admit I was a little shocked. We're going to talk about the FIBA USA roster for that basketball tournament coming up, as well as the opening exhibition that they played last night. I'll talk about my thoughts on that. I want to talk about the state of the running back position. I know there was a lot of conversation about this a few weeks ago. I, of course, hadn't recorded. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I have a way, I think, to remedy that. The NFL will never go for it, but this is really the approach that I see working the best to get running backs paid early in their careers so they don't have to worry about some of the shit that they're dealing with from the ages of 27 to 30 as far as getting paid by these teams. We're going to talk a little bit of wrestling today. We're going to talk WWE and AEW. Just a little peek behind the curtain. I did have a WrestleMania review recorded and completely lost it on my computer. I I record on FL Studio and literally as soon as I hit stop and had it recorded, it just I lost it whole system crashed so I do want to introduce that to this podcast a little bit of conversation about wrestling because I know some people that listen to this podcast they watch wrestling they watched wrestling when they were a kid um so that's something that I want to talk about because I am pretty passionate about it I still watch it regularly and um it's something I'm very interested in and You know, whatever topics come up along the way, I'll just kind of throw those in. And this is going to be, like I said, a mega episode and my return to the podcast game. So make sure to please like, share and subscribe. And wherever you are, whether it's Spotify or Stitcher or, you know, wherever you're listening to this, please just share this with the world. And I want to branch out and have a lot more listeners and have a lot more conversation in the comment section on YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. So please, if you may, um, just share this with your friends. Let's get into the FIBA USA roster as well as the exhibition game last night because I think that a lot of people are underestimating this roster. It's not a star-studded roster. I'll be the first to admit it's not. At the same time, I'm going to read these names off to you. Paolo Bencaro, Mikel Bridges, Jalen Brunson, Anthony Edwards, Tyrese Halliburton, Josh Hart, Brandon Ingram, Jaron Jackson Jr., Cam Johnson, Walker Kessler, Bobby Portis, and Austin Reeves. Now... Listening to that roster, you may feel like it's a pretty weak roster. 
And if you think about the superstars that are in the league, I guess you could say it's pretty weak. But this roster fits really well together, and it's pretty well balanced. You know, you have two point guards who can really score the ball and can really run the offense. You have a lot of wings on this team that could really defend. Cam Johnson, Mikel Bridges, Anthony Edwards is a really good defender. Josh Hart is a 3 and D guy. Walker Kessler is a rim protector. Bobby Portis is a scorer off the bench, but he can also defend. This whole team really can defend. Austin Reeves can run the offense. He can also get offense for himself in the ISO game. He can defend. He's a very smart player. So when I look at this roster, to me, it just says how far out in front of the rest of the world the U.S. still is. Because... In my opinion, they're probably still going to win this tournament, regardless of how weak you feel the roster is. And they aren't sending any of their A++ players. All of these guys are young guys. But at the same time, they can really play. And of course, you're going to have the Canada's, you know, Canada has a stacked roster. I get it. Australia. Australia is still going to have a pretty good roster this year. But, you know, and then you have, um, I think uh, Joker plays for, um, what is it, Serbia? So, yeah, you have some teams that could give them a scare. But I think the U.S. will still win this tournament. If there's anything to worry about, I would say... They need to figure out their lineups against certain teams because they are kind of small in the front court as far as their starters are concerned. But I'm not really worried about that. And I watched the game last night against Puerto Rico and they pulled away in the second half. The first half was pretty, you know, it was it was pretty close. Puerto Rico was, you know, they're they're a scrappy team. But at the same time, once the U.S.'s shot started to fall, you know, they ended up winning this game 117 to 74. And, you know, in the second half, they won on a 67 31 run. You know, in the final 20 minutes, you know, a 20 0 run between the third and the fourth quarter. So they really put an autumn late. Halliburton had 12 assists. Jalen Brunson had 12 rebounds. When you're getting rebounds, when you're getting help on the boards from your point guard like that, 12 boards, it's impressive. And no, obviously, Puerto Rico is not their most staunch competition. I'll be the first to admit that. But at the same time, this team has a lot of potential. A lot of potential. And they have a couple of guys that are really going to take significant steps forward this year, too. Anthony Edwards, Brandon Ingram. I think Cam Johnson's going to take a significant step forward this year. Therese Halliburton. They have a lot of guys that can really play. They're just not the premier names. They're not the Steph Currys. They're not the Trey Youngs, which actually there was controversy about him getting snubbed. He did confirm that he wanted to play on the team and they did not choose him. I think that's a mistake. At the same time, I don't think that means that they're automatically going to lose. But Trey Young is a guy that you should be able to fit onto the roster. I do agree with that. 
So I definitely want to see what happens in this tournament for sure. I still have the USA as my favorites. Let's move on to Crawford versus Spence. Because this was a super fight that was at least five years in the making. And Spence had his accident. And that kind of derailed all the hype for that. He came back. He had the fight against Ugas, I, I believe. And um, he got hurt in that fight. You know, there were a couple times that uh, Ugas hurt him. But, you know, this this fight for me was less about Errol Spence and more about how great of a fighter, how versatile of a fighter, how dynamic of a fighter Terrence Crawford is. For anybody who's watched Errol Spence, we know what Errol Spence's game plan is, really against everybody, right? And it's one of those things where it's kind of like a Mike Tyson. His game plan is the same against everybody because he's beaten everybody with that game plan, you know, heat seeking missile coming forward, digging to the body, setting up his combinations with the jab, keeping that jab in your face and, you know, constant pressure. He came out in the first round. He was very aggressive with that jab. Terrence Crawford didn't throw much volume, but the reason was he was figuring out the range. Terrence Crawford was figuring out the range because if you watched him, he was staying in the pocket. A lot of those punches were hitting gloves. A lot of those jabs were landing on gloves. The fans thought they were landing. They weren't. And once Terrence Crawford figured out, okay, this is where his hand stops when I'm in the pocket. This is where his hand stops. If his hand stops here and they hit my gloves, it's not going any further than that because I know for a fact he's stepping into his jab. That's another thing Errol Spence does. Errol Spence steps into his jab every time. He doesn't have a very jab. He doesn't throw an up jab. He doesn't throw a jab where he's not stepping in. He doesn't throw a jab backing up. He's not a counterpuncher. It's not what he does. Terrence Crawford knew this. So once Terrence Crawford figured out where he had to stand, where he had to plant himself to get out of the way of those jabs, knowing that every combination and any offensive attack from Errol Spence was going to start with his jab, Errol Spence was essentially ineffective in that fight from that point forward because Terrence Crawford was in the pocket in a great position where he could counter, step around and counter, and Errol Spence would not be able to adjust because he's not a counterpuncher. So when Errol Spence would jab, it was almost like Terrence Crawford was tricking him into resets. He was tricking him into losing these resets because Errol Spence would punch and he would throw his offense and he would, you know, he'd throw a jab, he'd throw a jab, he'd double the jab up there and he'd throw a left hand. And he would expect Terrence Crawford to just reset and not punch on the brakes. So then... Terrence Crawford would just let those punches hit his gloves, and then the next time Errol Spence would throw a jab, Terrence Crawford would beat him to the punch and jab him, which would then put him on the back foot, and then he started coming forward. It was a mind game. And Terrence Crawford is an expert. He's an expert on distance. He's an expert at placing his punches. He's an expert at figuring out 
okay, I can time your jab because you're not expecting me to jab with you. Errol Spence a lot of times is putting pressure on guys and their resets really don't factor in because he's basically just expecting them to circle out. And then, you know, it's it's your turn, it's my turn. It's your turn, it's my turn. It's give and take. With, Ter- with Terrence Crawford, I'm sorry, there was no give and take. It was when you least expect me to counter you, I'm going to jab with you and beat you to the punch because you, you're punching off a rhythm. You're stepping in with a jab and throwing a left hand. Everything is off a rhythm. There's no lead right hooks. There's none of that. There's nothing dynamic. And it's not to knock Errol Spence. That is his style and it has worked against some of the best in the world. But when you have a guy like Terrence Crawford that has a lot of pop in his punches, can fight coming forward, can fight backing up, can fight in the pockets, slipping punches. Doesn't need to use a lot of footwork dodging your punches because he's so comfortable in that pocket. It was impossible for Errol Spence to win that match once you figured out, okay, Terrence Crawford figured out his range and he's countering him because he knows where that, he knows where, Errol Spence's fist is going to end up when he's at this distance. It's as simple as that. That's the most simple way I can put it for you. When Errol Spence steps into his jab, this is where his hand will end up. Because I know every attack starts with a jab, and he said this after the fight. Because he knew every, every offensive attack, every flurry, every combination started with Errol Spence's jab, it made it easy for him to counter him. Because when he decided it was time to counter, he would just jab with Errol Spence. And he would beat him to the punch because everything is on rhythm. Everything is step, boom, step, boom, left hand, boom. Okay, you're on the ropes. Okay, step, boom, right hand, you know, right hook to the body. It's all in rhythm. It's not dynamic. So Terrence Crawford got the perfect distance away in the pocket and was countering with left hands. It was countering with uppercuts. And then he put Errol Spence on his back foot, which Errol Spence literally pretty much never has been put on his back foot by somebody for a significant amount of time. Those counters hurt because he didn't see him coming. So when it's time in the middle of a fight to adjust to that, it's hard. How can you? You fight one way. You fight coming forward. It's almost like Triple G. When Canelo started putting Triple G on his back foot, Triple G was out of his element. Triple G fights coming forward. Triple G fights, you know, he's, like I said, a heat-seeking missile. He fights slipping punches coming forward. He jabs and, and cuts the ring off and gets you in a position where he can now throw, you know, volume. It's the same thing with Errol Spence. In a rematch, I don't see Spence able to win a rematch either. It'll be closer. He won't get stopped. But those resets, I, I, I told y'all a while ago when I was explaining what a reset is. And, you know, a reset is basically when there's a flurry that's happening or there's offense being thrown on either side, there are punches being thrown on each side. There comes a point in time where the rhythm of it is, okay, reset, reposition yourself, whether it's circling out or stopping you know, punching and backing up, right? There's a reset. There's a point where you both collect yourself and the flurry's over and the exchange is over and you have to reset. And the greatest fighters of all time 
on the inside always made you feel secure on that reset. And at the last second, they would either counter you if you try to sneak them or they would land a punch on a punch. I'm sorry, on the exit. So if it's a clinch and the ref is breaking you up, then he steps away and says, work your way out and you're trying to let go. He'll land a punch. You know, he'll land a shot to the body. He'll land a counter, right? Those are very important resets, especially when you're fighting on the inside. Because the thing is that that's all of that stuff. There is off rhythm. There's no step in jab circle. No, there's none of that. It's, We're inside, we're working on the inside, you're throwing punches, it's your time now and your mind to circle out, and I'm going to throw a punch to catch you off guard, to make that exit not nearly as graceful as you thought it was going to be. And, you know, Terrence Crawford's great at that, Canelo's great at that, he actually got beat at his own game by Bavall in the last match. Baval won the resets in that match. So, you know, Terrence Crawford, amazing fighter. To me, he's an all-time great fighter as far as, you know, the tools that he has in his toolbox. A lot of people were talking about him versus Floyd in Floyd's prime. And I got to tell you, Floyd never fought a fighter like him. Floyd never faced a fighter like him. Oscar De La Hoya was not a counterpuncher. Shane Mosley was not a counterpuncher. Zab Judah was a counterpuncher, but Floyd was a smarter fighter than him. So like I was talking about with resets, he won those resets. He was timing him. He was countering him. He was throwing punches off rhythm. And he still had quickness that rivaled Zab Judah's quickness. Okay. um, When you have a guy like Terrence Crawford that can, like I said, fight forward, fight coming forward, fight backing up, fight in the pocket, fight in the clinch. It's something that Floyd Mayweather never saw in his career. And it's not to knock him, it's just it's just facts. If you look back at a lot of the fighters that Floyd would have had the fight in the 80s, Hagler, Hearns, Leonard, I don't think he would have made it out of that, you know, even Duran. I don't think he would have made it out of that era undefeated. And Terrence Crawford's another fighter that you can add to that. And a prime Canelo is a fighter that you can add to that. Now I know what people are going to say. Well, you know, he fought Canelo. Yeah, Canelo was young. Canelo got drained down for that fight. Canelo wasn't at a weight he was comfortable at. But he wasn't the A-side, so he had to submit to whatever terms Floyd had at that time, whatever weight they were going to fight at. These are the things I'm talking about. If he fought a Canelo, say, today, or even a Canelo like back during the Triple G era, be a different fight for Floyd. So, don't rule out, you know, I I don't like hypotheticals, obviously, but since, you know, a lot of people were talking about it, I figured I would give my two cents. And 
if we're talking about Floyd versus Crawford, it'd be a lot closer fight than you think. It's just like Roy Jones. If Roy Jones had to fight Andre Ward in his prime, right? I mean, these are the dream matches that you think about. Roy Jones was an early bloomer. Roy Jones was a prodigy. So when he fought Bernard Hopkins and he fought James Tony early in their careers, he was better than them earlier. And he was better than them later too. But he cleaned out that division a good two or three times. He was just better than everybody else. You never really saw him get challenged until he kind of got bored, started going up and down in weight. But yeah, that's my two cents on the uh, Crawford-Spence fight. Let's talk about the state of the running back position in the NFL. This is something that honestly has annoyed me. Looking at some of the things that have been transpiring and I know I haven't talked about this much on the podcast, but I hate the franchise tag. I hate it. It's an excuse not to pay somebody. It's an excuse. It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Not to pay somebody the money that they've earned. And they cannot leave and go to another team to get that money. I hate it. And by far, the position that is getting abused by it the worst is a position of running back. You think of the running backs that are drafted high. Um, You know, the Saquons, the Christian McCaffreys, the Derrick Henrys, all these first-round picks. And they get run into the ground. They get exploited earlier in their career. And when it's time for them to get paid their money, they get franchise tagged. Then you go into next year, you have the possibility of getting hurt playing on a franchise tag. And you may never see your money. And, um, you know, the, the running back position is the only position that is getting paid less now than they were five years ago. Makes no sense. People were making an argument of, oh, you don't need a star running back. Really? Really? Okay, so let's look at the league. Since the Tom Brady era in New England ended. Let's look at the teams that won Super Bowls. The Chiefs. They're an anomaly. They have Patrick Mahomes. They've won two Super Bowls. 
They've made five conference championships. The Eagles, they had a two-headed monster. Miles Sanders is now gone. I'm trying to think of other teams that won the Super Bowl. The Rams. Cam Akers would have got a big contract. He got hurt that year. Cam Akers was on the ascent. They're another anomaly. They went and spent money and went all in for that year. They spent a shit ton of money. The Buccaneers, they had Tom Brady the same way the Patriots had Tom Brady. When you have a Tom Brady, he covers a lot of holes. All of these are anomalies. Now look at the teams that are competing for, for you know, conference championships. What happens to Buffalo? What happened to Buffalo last year? They couldn't run the ball. In the playoffs, that is, because earlier in the season, they were running the ball just fine, and then they got they got away from it, which caused Josh Allen to press, which caused him to make mistakes, which caused him to turn the ball over. What about the Bengals? Joe Mixon isn't a star running back? What about the Packers? Aaron Jones wasn't a star running back? What about the Giants last year who played against another team with a running back that's now gone and was pushed out? Dalvin Cook, Saquon Barkley. Don't tell me you don't need star running backs. If you're a team that doesn't have a quarterback named Patrick Mahomes, you probably need a star running back. It's that simple. You're not going to win a championship without a great run game with multiple backs or a star running back. Look at Tennessee. Who was leading the charge every time they won the division and went into the playoffs and Ryan Tannehill would play like fucking dumpster juice? Derrick Henry. This idea that we need to phase out star running backs and not pay them because you don't need star running backs is absolutely ridiculous. People have been fooled into believing this and they're wrong. How many teams wouldn't give to have a guy they can hand the ball off to 20 times? And he gets you about 85, 90 yards, 100 yards. over having to sling the ball around 45, 50 times. Look at Austin Eckler. Look at what he did for that team. All while Justin Herbert got hurt and everybody's putting him on a pedestal as a top five quarterback. Meanwhile, Austin Eckler was his safety net out of the backfield, getting the ball in the end zone, catching the ball and running the ball. Another star. Don't tell me star running backs aren't needed to be successful in the NFL. It's simply not true. You don't think the Broncos could have benefited from a better run game last year? 
Hmm. Interesting. See, what people don't get is that exceptions are exceptions. They're not the rule. When you have a team that made five straight conference championships, you can't look at them and say, there, that's proof you don't need a star running back. Everybody can't do what Kansas City does. Look at the years that Dallas was most successful. It was when they handed the ball off to DeMarco Murray a million fucking times. And when Zeke was getting fed, they were the most successful. When Tony Romo and Dak didn't have to throw the ball as much. Because Zeke was that fucking dynamic. Because DeMarco Murray that year was that fucking dynamic. You can't just throw anybody back there. How about the years when the Saints were competing? Alvin Kamara out the backfield. Running the ball, catching the ball. They were in conference championships. Why do you think the 49ers went and put all their eggs in the Christian McCaffrey basket? See, this is the thing. They'll tell you. You don't need star running backs. But at the same time, they want star running backs that they can underpay. So it's not truly that they believe you don't need star running backs. They just don't want to pay them. They talk about the risk. The risk really is you run them into the ground and then you don't have to pay them and you can just let them walk and they never get a big contract again. That's that's really what it comes down to. But they put that across as, well, you don't need a star running back. No, you do need a star running back. You do need a running back that can carry the offensive load so your quarterback does not have to overextend himself. Aaron Rodgers has been a top five quarterback for years. And Aaron Jones was a star running back on his team. Kirk Cousins has been considered by many as a top 10 quarterback in the league. And Dalvin Cook was in that backfield. Daniel Jones got paid last year as a result of the fact that Saquon Barkley carried that fucking offense. These are stars getting other motherfuckers paid. They drafted in Tennessee two quarterbacks in back-to-back years. And Ryan Tannehill got his job back. Because they said we're going to run it back with Derrick Henry. Instead of rebuilding. Because if we have Derrick Henry, we have a chance. Joe Mixon on the Bengals makes Joe Burrow's job a hell of a lot easier than five different fucking running backs. I don't know how more, I don't know how much more I can explain this. It's a ridiculous concept. It is a, we don't want to pay them because we ran them into the ground the prior years mindset. So let me get to my solution to all this that the NFL will never go for. It's pretty simple. Two-year contracts. Two-year contracts when you get in the league. Rookie contract, two years. 
In that first two years, you ball out, you prove yourself. Then you have the option to sign a four or five year deal. So by the time you're 24, you got your money. And if a team does not want to spend it on you, no, they are not allowed to hold you captive. You can go elsewhere. After two years. Then you sign that four or five year contract. By the time you're 23, 24, you sign that contract, you get to the point where you're 28, you got your money. They can't franchise tag you. They can't limit how much they pay you. Teams are going to have to ante up and pay their fucking running backs. And you could even do it where you limit running back contracts to two years, period. Two years, period. And, you know, you can do two years and then you can re-up for two years and get paid big. And then if the team really doesn't want to take a chance on you because they feel like you're banged up, then you can go elsewhere. There's no franchise tag to keep, you know, keep this player captive and pay him what we want to pay him. Fuck that shit. Because running backs are the one getting the short end of the stick with this. And then they looked at his damaged goods at 28, 27, 28. Nah. Short contracts. Make the teams invest in you. The rookie contracts would be two years. Proving ground. Come in, make an impact, B. John Robinson. Come in and make an impact. Then after that, they got to choose. They want to pay you. They don't want to pay you. If they don't want to pay you, you go somewhere else. And I know what people are going to say. Oh, well, what about parity? There is no parity in the league. I just told you a team in the NFL made five straight conference championships. Don't tell me shit about parity. I don't want to hear it. It's an excuse. If you don't want to pay this player, he can go somewhere else. Period. End of story. There is no franchise tag. There is no holding you captive. There is no, we're going to pay you what we want to. No. Two-year contracts. You are not about to keep me saddled here for four years in a shitty organization. And then when it's time for me to go and compete somewhere else or it's time for me to go get paid. I can't because everybody's looked at me as used goods because I ran the ball over 300 times the past three years. Fuck that shit. No, it's time to get paid. Short contracts. No franchise tags. See what these teams do then. Oh, Josh Jacobs don't got a franchise tag? See what they do then. Oh, they'll pay his ass then, won't they? Or let him walk to Kansas City and see how that shit works out for you. How would that work out? Let his ass walk somewhere else. To a team where he's appreciated. To a team where he gets paid. And if he doesn't want to go and compete on one of them teams, he can just go to a team where he gets bread, man. And get paid. Because at the end of the day, that's that's the point of playing professional sports. People can talk about winning all they want to. And football is about securing your family. And really, all these sports, it's about securing your family financially. Why are running backs not allowed to do that? Why do they have to get looked at as damaged goods after they put their heart, soul, blood, sweat, tears into every down, running the ball, getting hit every play, and you're like, oh, you're damaged goods. Okay, cool, we're going to pay you this instead of that 
oh, Saquon Barkley, we're going to use the fact that you're a great teammate against you. We know you're going to show up. We know you're going to show up, and then we're going to act like we tacked on some type of, you know, great incentives, but really, you have to hit numbers you've never hit in your career before to get this extra mil. Get the fuck out of here. Saquon Barkley should be allowed to walk, because I guarantee you there'd be a a list of teams that would line up to pay him that money. But because the culture says in the NFL that you do not pay your running backs, they are allowed, because of the franchise tag, to hold motherfuckers hostage and not pay them. That is the issue. That's why the two-year contracts come into play. See how these teams act then when they're on the clock. When Saquon can walk to another team and get paid. Fuck that parody conversation. I don't want to hear it. There ain't no parody in sports. There's no parody in sports. People need to stop pretending there is. If there's any parody in sports, it's fucking hockey. That's about it. At the trade deadline in, the, in, in Major League Baseball, who were the real winners? All the major big market teams. The Astros getting their pitcher back. The Dodgers. When you hear about the Shohei conversation, where is he going to sign? All these major teams. There's no parity in sports. The Rays are an anomaly. They have a bunch of guys that are not paid a lot of money, but they can play baseball. They're great utility players. They have a great lineup and a great manager and a great organization, a great farm system. Merry fucking Christmas. They're the exception, not the rule. It's the same thing when you talk about paying running backs. It's the same thing when you talk about needing a star running back. There are certain teams that are exceptions. They're not the rule. You can't prove to me that they are. Are you telling me that the Cowboys would have been as effective without Emmett Smith? You're telling me if they had two running backs to match that production? Or Barry Sanders? Oh, well, fuck. We suck anyway. Who cares? Let's franchise tag his ass. We're not going to pay him. He's just the fucking MVP. See how stupid that is? This is the first era. And I blame the Patriots for this. Because the Patriots, and it's just like the Golden State Warriors impact. You start doing something that works and every other team thinks they can emulate and they can't. The Patriots won Super Bowls with the greatest quarterback to ever live and everybody believed you didn't need a star running back. And it's not true. Everybody was convinced you can just plug any guy in there and you'll be fine. It has not worked. It hasn't. It hasn't worked. If that was the case, Buffalo would have made a fucking Super Bowl by now. They haven't. Why is that? You had fucking Odell Beckham sign with the Rams in the middle of the season and make their offense unstoppable and Cam Akers fucking like tore his Achilles or some shit because if he was there, like I said, he they would have had to pay him.
or let him go or franchise him like they're going to pull some bullshit and franchise him. But my point is, all these teams that you look at that are having success, you can only name like two or three of them that are truly having success in the playoffs without having a star running back. There are few teams ever that you could name that won Super Bowls and consistently competed without a superstar running back. All the years the Chargers were great, they had LT. All the years Tennessee was competing, they had Eddie George. The years when the Ravens were competing after the first Super Bowl, they had Jamal Lewis. They had Jamal Lewis then too, but he was young. All the years the Jets were actually semi-competing in the AFC East. They had Curtis Martin. The Patriots signed Corey Dillon, who was a star running back at the time, regardless of how people want to revise history. Corey Dillon was a star running back at that time on a really bad team. The years that the Bengals went to the playoffs in the mid-2000s. Rudy Johnson. Rudy Johnson was a star running back. It's not like he was the greatest, but he was a top 15 running back in the league. So what are we talking about? Pay these fucking running backs, man. Because the reality is, I'm cheering against the teams that are fucking over their running backs. Because of scumbag shit. The Saquon Barkley's the Josh Jacobs, the Derrick Henrys. I'm cheering against these teams. I'm not going hard like, oh, I no, but at the same time, I'm cheering against them because it's fuck shit. And they're only taking advantage of what the NFL allows and really this comes down to the NFLPA too. Stop agreeing to this shit. The franchise tag will never go anywhere, but they have to at least attempt to get rid of that shit. They're not even, it's not even a discussion piece. It's bullshit. It's just like in the NBA. The fuck you mean a restricted free agent? No, that's not free agency. I talked about that with DeAndre Ayton. It's a joke, bro. It's an absolute fucking joke. Play these players. Pay these play. Don't wait till you don't wait till you're pressed. Oh, I guess I'll pay him because his other team wants him. Fuck that shit, man. It's bullshit. It's holding players captive, not paying them what they're truly worth. In the NBA, until you're pressed to. In the NFL, there's not even until you're pressed to. You can just franchise a dude multiple times over. So that's my answer to this running back situation. Short contracts. Two years. Because every two years, you're able to assess where a running back is health-wise. You don't want to sign a long-term deal. If a team doesn't want to sign you to a long-term deal, sign two years somewhere, compete, maybe sign a long-term deal after that. But my, my suggestion would be, which they still can do this, my suggestion would be for players now 
sign two-year deals, get as much money as you can within them two years, and move on. Because these teams are going to fuck you over. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about some wrestling. I've been watching wrestling since I was a kid. I've been watching wrestling since I was about four or five years old. Attitude Era ate it up. WCW around that time, Monday Night Wars ate it up. All the way through Triple H's Reign of Terror. I think I stopped watching for a point in time, like around 2009, 2010. It was getting kind of whacked to me. Um, and then I came back and I started watching again. Around the time where The Shield came around. So, I've been a wrestling fan for most of my life. Most of my 30 years here on Earth. I do watch WWE Weekly, mostly SmackDown, sometimes Raw, but three hours is obnoxious to me. AEW on Wednesdays, I've kind of soured on, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, But Collision on Saturdays, I watch religiously pretty much every week now. To me, it is the best pro wrestling show on TV. And I think a lot of people that are into this whole tribalism aspect of professional wrestling fandom, especially online, I think they're not willing to admit that both sides have some good qualities, but both sides also have qualities that they could take from the other side. WWE's lack of blood really bothers me. I think there is some sort of emotional investment that can be created with blood. Doesn't mean you have to be like John Moxley and bleed every week. No, doesn't mean that. When used correctly, used in small doses, blood is very important. If we see Cody Rhodes down the line in a program with uh, Roman Reigns to, you know, dethrone Roman Reigns. Do you think that a segment where Roman Reigns is getting heat on Cody would not require blood? Do you think that that would not make the segment mean even more? If you think about it subconsciously, blood means danger to people. You sympathize with somebody that's bleeding, busted open, especially when you see the person that did it to him right in front of you. You send officials out. Roman Reigns kind of plays king of the hill, keeps the officials out. Keeps people away from helping Cody up. Getting Roman off of him. Roman goes back to get more heat on Cody. It would mean so much more if blood was allowed. Triple H says, oh, in 2023, I don't think we need blood. Eh, Okay, that's what you're supposed to say. On the other hand, we have AEW, who they just do too much of everything, always. And um, WWE has its faults, for sure. But AEW's faults, to me, are way more glaring from the perspective of Tony Khan just doesn't know how to book. 
he doesn't know how to book wrestling. He doesn't know how to book coherent storylines. He doesn't know how to get out of his own way as far as this bullshit comedy. I'm not going to sit and act like I'm some wrestling expert. I'm not, but at the same time, you're the boss of a company where guys are just allowed to do whatever the fuck they feel like doing in every match. So then by the time you get to the main event, they have nothing left to do. Just look at um, Forbidden Door. Kenny Omega and fucking Will Ospreay did a million fucking things in that match. Dropped each other on their fucking heads. And then Okada and Danielson had to go out after that? The fuck is left for them to do? What if they wanted to put somebody through a table? What if they wanted to get juice? They can't. Because you already did it. So now it means nothing if we do it. That's the issue. Understanding that. Like I said, understanding coherent booking. Things that make sense week to week. Not just hot shotting. AEW has a lot of issues. They have a lot of untrained wrestlers. Or wrestlers that didn't train for very long in a professional environment. There's a lot of issues with AEW. Then you look on Saturdays and magically, as if Tony Khan is held hostage and tied up in a room, has nothing to do with Collision. Collision's a brilliant fucking wrestling show. Doesn't have commentators trying to get every move in and call every move. Oh, the hoo-hoo-hoo. No. He calls the match like it's a real sport. They break down strategies of how one wrestler can get the advantage over the other wrestler. They talk to you like you're a fucking adult. They have segments and they have feuds and they have storylines that make sense. Simple storylines that make sense. Ricky Starks wanting Samoa Joe's spot or CM Punk's spot or anybody's spot week to week makes sense. CM Punk saying, I never lost this belt. I was never beaten for it. It makes sense. Even something that you might feel is a little bit silly, like Andrade being mad over his mask. All these things make sense. They're things that adults can understand. It's not silly bullshit. It's not melodramatic. Oh, you're not my friend anymore. Bullshit. And that is why Collision, you know, everybody keeps talking about, oh, it's a work in progress. Oh, AEW's only been around for three years, four years. Okay, fine. Collision's been around for like a fucking month. How is it already better than AEW Dynamite as a wrestling show? That doesn't tell you something. That doesn't tell you that the owner of the company maybe needs to stop saying, I won't let anybody other than myself book my fucking show. I dare anybody to send me some proof that Tony Khan has anything to do with collision because it would literally spit in the face of everything that's happened in the past four years with his booking. WWE, they have issues of their own. Like I said, the no blood thing bothers me. 
their stop and start booking with certain people bothers me. L.A. Knight. They're just now trying to capitalize on L.A. Knight. You throw him in a tournament. He's not going to win. You know he's not going to win because you're booking it. You're scripting it. You know what the result is going to be. Why the fuck would you throw him in a tournament? He was getting over for months. He was losing on TV. He still got over. But then again, this is the company that, you know, and this was a past regime. This isn't necessarily Triple H's regime, but this is a company who had people in it who said wins and losses don't matter. Road Dog, when he was the executive producer, when he was the head of SmackDown, wins and losses don't matter. Oh, really? Okay, cool. So next Monday, let's trot Roman Reigns out there and have him lose to Cedric Alexander. Since wins and losses don't mean anything. So now that we can get that bullshit out of the way, that wins and losses do mean something. Why isn't Austin Theory winning on TV every week? Why is he not, like like I said, bro, I'm going to say this again. I am a fan. At the same time, I have listened to and studied a lot of the greats that talk about the philosophy of booking. And for me, it's less about wrestling booking and more about storytelling because I am a writer. I've been writing for a long time. I I think that I know what makes fucking sense in the scope of how a story has started or how it's proceeded, or how it will end. I'm not saying I'm an expert of wrestling. I'm open to being wrong, but I'm giving my opinion. If you're telling me that you're going to put a belt on a guy, like Theory, and you are not going to have him come out at least every other week and beat some fucking jobber, and, and the jobber puts him over and makes him look impressive, how do you expect anybody to take Austin Theory seriously? Why is Austin Theory not getting wins on TV? Why? It's okay if he cheats to win every championship match. Why is he not? Even MJF, even in AEW where Tony Khan does not know the fuck he's doing. MJF was getting wins against guys that were underneath him for months. He come out, he beat the guy in two minutes, he cut a promo. Why can't Austin Theory do this? Why is this so difficult? And the answer's simple. And I've heard this from a lot of people. A lot of people have said this. That's too pro-wrestling for Vince McMahon. Before Vince McMahon came back, Last year, we were moving towards a lot of these things. As much as people try to deny it, as much as people hated WWE, Triple H was doing a lot of these things. Guys were getting wins on TV. They need to get wins on TV. They were getting over. Judgment Day was still getting booked like shit, but eh, can't, can't all be winners, right? Then Vince McMahon comes back, forces his way back in. And regardless of Triple H says he's in on the day-to-day booking, okay, fine. He's not in on the day-to-day booking. Vince McMahon isn't. Fine. But he set a foundation fundamentally for how things are done, and they don't fucking make sense to me. 
in the scope of what pro wrestling has been. You used to have to part with your money and leave your house to see competitive matches on pay-per-view or in person. Now, you got competitive matches every week. You got guys not getting over. You got 50-50 booking. Gimmick matches that mean fucking nothing. Throwaway, triple threat, and and fade. And I know y'all sitting there like, isn't he he a fan of wrestling? Yes, I'm a fan of wrestling. But these things, like this is why Collision is a breath of fresh air. You get competitive matches, obviously. But then you have guys that come out and just have a squash match and they get over. Powerhouse Hobbs. When you have three hours of television, isn't there a lot of time to showcase your stars? Isn't there time for Odyssey Jones to get a squash victory? Isn't there time for you to get guys that don't get much TV on TV, whether they're the one doing the job or they're the one getting over? They're the one going over. I know I'm using a lot of indie terms, but fuck it. Everybody does it today. Whatever. I know I'm using a lot of insider terms, I should say. At the same time, these are conversations people have these days. Like I said, it's just my opinion. I don't claim to be right. It's my opinion. If I was in a conversation with somebody that worked in a business, I would not be talking like this right now. But this is my fucking podcast. So this is how I'm going to talk. Yeah, but like I was saying, so the way, in my opinion, and we've seen this in the past, the way that guys, even WWE recently have gotten over. I mean, look at Drew McIntyre. Drew McIntyre, the peak of him right before he turned babyface, like right around the time, I want to say like right before the Royal Rumble where he eliminated Brock, he was a heel. Like when he eliminated Brock from Royal Rumble, he was a heel. They had a match on Raw versus Cedric Alexander. And it was such an impressive match, but at the same time, it was kind of a squash match. And Drew just fucking Claymore kicked the fuck out of him. And despite the fact he was a heel, the fans went apeshit because it was impressive. And he got over. You don't get over having competitive matches with people. You don't. You don't get over having competitive matches with people. It's never been the case. It's never been the case. Go back and watch Razor Ramon's debut. Go back and watch Triple H's debut. They ease them in. They got them over against guys that were lesser than them. And then slowly but surely, they started to put them in competitive matches on pay-per-view. But most times it was a squash match. It was, it was a promo. It was, you know, you weren't seeing them struggling with fucking some random on TV. And you weren't, having these competitive matches week to week where they couldn't get over. 
It's just, oh, somebody has to win one, two, three. No. You don't get over by having competitive matches. You don't. You get over by having impressive outings against underneath talent. And slowly but surely, when they work you into a spot where you can start working with a big-time star, then the storyline around it, the feud, gets you over if you're working with somebody, obviously, that is a higher caliber than you. Right? But it's like, those old-school principles are gone. There's no such thing as bringing somebody along slowly now. It's all or nothing. But that's my spiel. I I think All In is going to be impressive. I have my own thoughts about why they've sold so many tickets. I think that certain people need to look at the domestic attendance for AEW. And that should actually be a bit of a red flag. Regardless of what they do with All In, I hope it's successful. I think it will be successful. They're starting to announce matches. Um, I haven't talked much about the Bloodline this episode purposely because I think next episode I'm going to talk more about the Bloodline. But obviously for those of you who didn't see SummerSlam, you know, Jimmy came out and turned on Jay. So, interesting developments there. I'll talk more about that next week. Um, in the meantime, I think I'm going to end this episode here. Talks about a lot of things. There are some more things I want to talk about, but I'm going to save that. Uh, like I said, please like, share, and subscribe. I am on any platform where you listen to your favorite podcast. Just type in power hour with free Royal and I am right there for you. Please like, share, and subscribe. Share this with your friends. Share this with your family. Share this with your girlfriend, boyfriend, your fucking dog. Share it with everybody. And until next time, I am Free Royal. Y'all be good. Stay productive. Stay safe. Peace.